Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today's topic, Examining Ethics, Part 2. Last week, you heard from Kelly McBride, NPR's Public Editor and Chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership at the Pointer Institute. We had so much more to talk about that we invited Kelly back for another episode. Thanks again for joining us. It's great to be here. So last time we talked about the dilemma that newsrooms face, the question of how much can journalists express publicly or participate in and not compromise their ability to be perceived as fair. Obviously, this came up a lot this year in the context of support for Black Lives Matter. Kelly argued for being much more transparent and much more true to ourselves. Um, Anything you want to add to that conversation before we move on to other, other topics? No, I feel like I feel like we aired that out pretty thoroughly, or at least I got to say what I think and nobody argued with me. That's what I like. <laughs> so let's talk more about transparency. Um, you argued for newsrooms to have and publicize mission statements and make clear the steps we take in our reporting, what we do, what we don't do. Um, have you seen that? Have you, have you seen that positively affect readers and the way they perceive us? Yes. Mostly you see it around public newsrooms, like public media newsrooms, and around startups that are trying to raise money. So, for instance, um, I think one of the most famous ones is the Texas Tribune, right? And they, you know, to, 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 to sort of be completely clear, it's a lot easier when you're starting from scratch to do it. And if you work for a news organization that's been publishing for 150 years, it's really hard to stop and say, oh, here's why we're here, right? Because that point never comes. Whereas if you're starting something new in your founding documents, it's like, oh, here's why we exist. And here's how we define our audience. However, Um, You know, I think when you see newsrooms do that, like the Texas Tribune or the Min Post in Minneapolis, um, certainly National Public Radio has done a fabulous job of that. What you see is the audience readjusting expectations of what this entity is. And that often becomes a much better starting point for a conversation about what you should be covering, which is a lot of times what the audience gets mad at us for in journalism and how you should be covering it, whether you take a point of view or whether you come at a topic with complete neutrality. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's true. I mean, everybody that's starting up right now, they, they, it's part of what they do. It's part of their DNA is to sort of explain themselves. We're not very good at that's. I mean, I was just going to say, like, I mean, I, 
we've all been around the business a long time, we're really bad at explaining ourselves. I, I, and I'm not sure all the reasons why. I, I mean, I guess traditionally it just wasn't a thing. We didn't bother with it. Well, I, I mean, my experience with that is, is that traditionally we felt like it was a sign of weakness if we had to explain ourselves. This is back in the day, right? Like when I was a really young journalist. But I've had more conversations with journalists where an audience member has said, you know, I don't like the way you did that. Why'd you do it that way? And the journalist in response has said, you don't understand what journalism is about, right? And it's like, what a condescending way to treat your customers. And that's because we don't really consider them our customers. We've resisted that idea that that we owe them something. And instead we like seeing ourselves as providers of a product that you can either choose to engage with or not to engage with. But the problem with that approach is that if they don't engage with journalism, then democracy doesn't work very well. And so if as journalists, we're giving them a product that they don't want, um, then we're failing to support democracy. So we, we need another approach. And we're out of work. <laughs> exactly, right. And there's no business model. But it's also, I can see how that would become a whole lot more important now that we are asking for money. You know, you talked about public media needing to be transparent because public media, whether it's NPR or PBS, we need them to fund us to stay alive. And that wasn't the case for us when me and you and Maria were growing up, you know, in, in this business. But now it is. Now we're having to go, hey, readers, we need you. We need you to donate. Well, what are you donating to? You know, and I think it's going to become even more important the more we have to ask for that kind of public support instead of relying on liquor ads, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that like, so we're in this position of economic weakness, and that causes us to realize that like, oh, right, if you want to have a good relationship with these people, you should really define what it is you expect to provide them with. Whereas in the past, we were like, here it is, take it or leave it. So isn't it ironic that now that we're in this position of economic weakness, we decide, oh, we need to tell them what we're all about. And we need to de define what our product is and why we think it's of value. Whereas in the past, when we didn't need money, we were just like, here, take it or leave it. It's up to you. And like, like what kind of business survives that way? That's, that's, how, that's not how you develop a trusting relationship with anybody. And yet, because of our economic superiority in the past, I think that was our approach to the audience. And, and we're paying for it now, right? Because we see that it was years, decades of that attitude. And it was across all forms of journalism, right? Television, newspapers, magazines, it was everybody doing that. And so now you have this audience that's a little skeptical and they're just not sure if they should trust us. And it's because they have an experience with us that may not have been completely healthy. Let me ask a really specific ethical question. And I know you, you are employed by NPR in, in ethics capacity. Something that like, I've been listening to NPR forever. And, and when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, there was a really interesting outtake from that about Nina Totenberg, who'd been like her best friend, who covers the Supreme Court. They'd been long, young law students together or something. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg officiated her marriage. And all of a sudden I had this whole different 
mindset about who Nita Totenberg was and how the Supreme Court was being covered. And what do you think about that relationship? And what I've never heard NPR be transparent about that until she died and people started questioning it. Right. So, and I, I feel really comfortable talking about this because I wrote a column about it. So um, it's not, I mean, I, I have to be careful in my role with NPR that I do my work for them and not do it on other platforms. But this is sort of repeating work that I've already done. So I feel like it's fair game. Um, yeah, my eyes like popped out of my head and I was like, wait, what? Your, your top legal correspondent was literally best friends with the most famous Supreme Court justice and we didn't know. Now, what NPR would say is, no, everybody knew, right? Everybody knew that. What they mean by everybody knew that is everybody in, who's inside the beltway, right? Everybody who is a close observer of Nina Totenberg's work. Um, she had mentioned her relationship with Ginsburg she had introduced Ginsburg at a couple of events that were like for Ginsburg's books and stuff like that. And so they didn't hide it, but it is still incredibly problematic because of exactly what you just described. If you didn't know that, which I'm gonna guess that most of the 38 million people who consume NPR on broadcast on a weekly basis didn't know it, right? Like let's, let's assume that maybe a million of them knew it and 37 million of them didn't know it. Those 37 million people are gonna have the exact same reaction that you have, which is it causes you to question the information that you've already consumed and to wonder if that information was somehow colored by that relationship. When in fact, NPR should have, I believe they did have in place editing procedures to make sure that that friendship didn't inappropriately color the reporting that Totenberg did. And so if, if they would have said that from the get-go and if they would have made it more transparent, if that information could have been easily discoverable by anybody who who wanted to know it, right? Like if it was on Nina Totenberg's bio for NPR, like, oh, by the way, she's best friends with one of her most important sources and here's what we do about it. Um, but instead you really had to be an inside the beltway political observer to know that, um, that, that, was, that, that, was, that that was a well-known fact and that NPR was in fact dealing with it. And so that's an example of where I think some transparency would have gone a long way because what are you gonna do, right? Like Nina Totenberg is literally the Dean of Supreme Court reporters. You're not gonna take her off the Supreme Court. Her friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg literally evolved before Ginsburg was a Supreme Court justice. So in the same way that I don't think you can disqualify someone from covering Black Lives Matter because they're Black, right? I don't think that you can disqualify somebody for something that is organic as a friendship or even a marriage, but you have to deal as an organization with the with the actual conflict of interest and the perception of that conflict of interest. And you should do that openly and robustly. 
And, and in the same way that, in fact, I, I said this in the column, some people got really mad at me for saying this because they think that these are, that this is a false equivalency, but I actually think that it's a completely justified equivalency that it's the same type of conflict of interest. If you decide to march in a Black Lives Matter protest, or you have a deeply intimate friendship with someone on your beat, that those are both actions that are absolutely core to who you are as a human being. You're being asked to choose between those two things. And it's really not fair or appropriate to ask journalists to choose between something that is deeply finding of who they are as a person and their work. And in fact, in most cases, those things that are deeply defining inform your work and make it better, but you should be transparent about it. I just want to echo something you said last time too, about this idea that, you know, people make assumptions about us anyway, right? They are, and in most cases, they're probably thinking the worst about us. So that we, I mean, we have a lot to gain and almost nothing to lose by, by letting them know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever's important to, to bring to bear as they're reading through some of our journalism. Oh, completely, completely. Um, if you leave something silent, people assume the worst. That's just human nature, right? They're going to assume that you're being um, manipulated by dark money or um, by, by, by profit. Um, and in fact, um, a lot of times the conflicts that we do have are completely explainable and, and capable of being navigated. But if you don't, if you don't address it, they don't trust you. I mean, I can, I can see how having um, expertise or friendship or passion could really help inform you covering a beat. I mean, especially like the Supreme Court, she probably got a lot of good insight from being friends with RGB, you know, um, but I also see how that could be problematic. And so I, there was an interesting article in, in Columbia Journalism Review like recently about how indigenous people's stories should only be told by indigenous people or, or, or best told by indigenous people. And, and I, I wrestle with that a bit in my mind because I can see the first person aspect of how that would just bring so much knowledge and context. But I also think sometimes outsiders perspective help point things out that insiders can't see or understand. So I wondered how you felt about that idea of like, who gets to tell my story, you know? Yeah, I, you know, so that's really, really complicated. And over my career, especially over the last couple of years, I have moved much more closely to the idea that we Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You need people from the culture to tell the story of the culture. And I don't, I, I don't want, I don't want to say that a skilled reporter who's not from the culture can't tell that story, but I have heard so many examples of 
parachute journalism, right? Where, where we come in from the outside and a lot of times it's around the world, right? So Western reporters go into a non-Western setting, but also you see it in, um, in, in communities that are right here in our own area, right? Where nobody from this community has ever been a journalist in a local news organization. And yet here we are going in and with our, through our own lens, trying to tell their story. So I don't want to say that I, that I don't think an outsider can tell a story of a community, but there's a massive, massive power imbalance when that happens massively. And I think that what we have to do as editors, right, as assigning editors, especially, is say, what is our, what, what alternatives do we have? We have, we see a story that we want to tell, or we think there's a story there that we want to tell. What alternatives do we have? Um, so, you know, our first instinct is usually to send our best writer, right? Send Lane to Gregory, right? She's a great writer. Um, and she's super, she's super good at that, right? Like you're really good at being observational and respectful. Um, so, so first I would look for, I would look to see not necessarily as a source, but literally as a co-author or a fixer right? Who could I, I want that person to be loyal to me and to my objectives, right? And so how could I find someone who could help me understand nuances that I am not going to understand? So I think that's one option. I think another option is to be very, very attuned to that power imbalance and to do things like show them a copy of the story ahead of time, right? Which I know people talk in ethics about like, well, aren't you compromising your independence? And I hear from many journalists that they would never, ever do that. I think it's different when the power is similar than when the power is way out of whack. And when you are covering individuals or a community that has very little power, showing them the story and actually letting them sit with it for a while and then hearing where they might object. Because first of all, they'll spot the factual errors, right? And who doesn't want to fix their factual errors? But the other thing is, is they will, sh they will point out to you if they feel comfortable and they trust you, they will point out to you things that you were doing and saying out of unconscious bias. And you don't want to do that because, because when, you, when you say things out of unconscious bias, one of the things that it does is it signals to the people in the community that this is a story about them, but not necessarily for them. Now, it may not be for them, right? Like they may not be in your audience and consumers, but they should at least feel respected and um, they should feel like not only are the facts right, but that the tone and the facts amount to an, an accurate and authentic portrayal of who they really are. Yeah, the, the flip side of this, and it, this is, it's why it's really complicated too, is um, as you were talking about that, I was thinking back like my first 12 years I spent in a small newsroom where I was the only Hispanic reporter and there was one black reporter. 
And the two of us consistently felt like um, you're always up against like, are you being pigeon? You, you have to go cover your community because nobody else is going to do it or do it as well. But then when you go cover your community, um, those stories aren't as important to the rest of the newsroom. And so then you become these reporters who have sort of a narrow impact. So and it's like it's not like the diversity has gotten loads better in the 30 years since. Right. Um, if anything, it's gotten worse. Yeah. yeah so but it, but I know this is a this is the challenge. I mean, now I see a lot more uh, minority journalists coming up who feel very much uh, a sense of they've got to go cover their communities because they they're not seeing them covered. But there, ha there is a trade-off with that, which is a tricky thing in newsrooms. But I like all your, all your advice you're talking about because the reality is right now, you know, to cover our communities well, we have to send people out there who may not have much understanding of those communities. I like your idea as a fixer too. That's an interesting way to put it because it's, it's not really your partner. It's not really your source, but a fixer, someone who gets you in there and makes sure you get it right is a wonderful way to look at it. Right. Yeah, I mean, Maria, the... Um... The, the problem with with what you just described, right? That, that like it felt um, minimizing to your own career. That's like a problem with journalism, right? That's because we were sending you out on a story that we didn't actually care about. And so we were like, you go cover this because we need to nominally do something about this, but we don't really value this story. Right. That, that was a bigger systemic problem in all of journalism. Um, and I think, I think maybe we're over that. Maybe. I mean, maybe now that we realize a bunch of things, one is, is that um, we sort of screwed the pooch on this and we had a lot, we had, we had a couple decades to get it right. And we didn't take any opportunities to do it. Um, that um, the demographics of the country are changing so much that um, we're not going to have any audience left if all of, if products are only for white people, there are really, really important stories about the intersection of race and culture. And if we can't tell those stories well, we will be, um, we will be inadequate as, as a journalism organization. So I think that all three of those things were not true 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, and isn't part of the job of journalists too, to make people care? You know, you think you don't care about this, but let's figure out a reason why this does affect you and you should care, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and, and also just to, to move people, right? To make them feel something. That's a really important part of journalism. I will finish up with uh, going undercover. We'll talk about the, uh, the TV report. Oh, yeah. So, so there was something that there was um, going over the uh, Society of Professional Journalists website last week or the week before about a TV station, I think, in Fort Myers. And a young reporter decided he was going to go undercover and be a homeless man. And, and panhandle on the street and talk about what that experience was like. And he got a ton of flack for that um, about like trying to misrepresent him or was he misrepresenting himself? He, he gave the money that he panhandled that day to some charity. He wasn't, you know, profiting from himself, but you know, is that the right way that journalists should go about doing something? And I was remembering a story that I was sent out on several years ago when they were trying to um, ban panhandlers in St. Pete, remember that? They were, they were mm -hmm. trying to arrest people for mm -hmm. that. So my editor at the time, Mike Wilson, he said, go out and tell us how they do it. And I was like, what? And he said, give us a how-to guide on how it works when you're out there on the streets panhandling. So mine was told in second person, you got to do this. You got to fly a flag. You got to get there early. You got to. 
and I, I just wondered about those two approaches to almost the same story. Like, it is, is one more ethical than the other? I mean, it's felt like a story you didn't want to just go interview panhandlers on. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> this isn't just because I like you, Lane Gregory, but I <laughs> thought that your story, first of all, was a much more informative piece of journalism. It was much more insightful. It was observational. You talked to actual sources. You had to work so much harder for your story than um, that other journalist. Pretending to be a panhandler is, is, yes, it's dishonest, right? Even if you're not openly lying to people, and he made a point to say, if anybody asked, I told them what I was doing, who I was and all that. But it is, it is, it is profoundly dishonest on the face of it because you are not a panhandler, you are not homeless. And it's also, it gives the, gives the audience an, a distorted view of what is really going on, right? I mean, that guy was a good looking, young, clean shaven, clean clothes guy standing on an interstate exit or an intersection somewhere, right? That is not the experience that most panhandlers have when they put, when they write on their sign, anything helps, which is he, what he wrote on his sign. And so that's not, you're not even giving them an accurate portrayal. And so then he, and so, and there's real harm in that, right? Because what he, that story, if you remember, ended with him talking to a social services person. And he was saying, yeah, I was out there for like two hours or four hours and I made like 200, no, no, no. He said he made like $40 or something like that. But he came to the conclusion that you could make up to $400 if you stayed out there for 10 hours. That's crazy, right? Like like that, and, and probably most definitely not true for most panhandlers, right? That's like bad data. And that's taking this one experience that was distorted and then generalizing it to all panhandlers it, it just to me was so irresponsible. I thought, you know, it was dishonest. It was bad storytelling. It was not good information. Um, and, and I just don't know how that served the audience at all. I felt like it was, it was a stunt is what it was really. Think it's ever okay to go undercover? Not, no. I mean, I think, and so keep in mind, there is a difference between going undercover and participating in something that like, like, you know, like, like if you want to go find out the price of tomatoes, you can go into any grocery store and look at the price of tomatoes. But if you wear your press badge, they're going to be like, get out of here. You're not allowed to be in here. Right. You're not going to distort the information by doing it that way, but lying about who you are undermines the overall trust in journalism, right? And, and, and there's so many examples where, you know, like cops will every once in a while lie and say that they're journalists to cover a protest or to do something where they're actually undercover. Um, and so it really hurts our credibility as journalists when we lie about who we are. So I don't think I don't want to say never because I could imagine a hypothetical scenario where there is no other way to get the information. But I would say this, first of all, if there's any other way to get the information, you should 
do that and not go undercover, right? So that's the first thing, right? Is there any other way, even if it's a lot more expensive or time consuming, then do that, right? Like do it the honest way. If the information is so incredibly important that the audience would be harmed by not having it. So it might be, um, you know, that some public official is stealing money and there's no other way to get it. I could see then possibly coming up with a plan that you might go undercover, but all those other conditions would have to be in place. Certainly not just trying to figure out how much a homeless guy makes panhandling in a day. There's no justification for that. Uh, I got to go catch up with that story. Um, all right. If you have a question for Lane or for Kelly, or you want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Ayana Ishmael. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.